0: Well, today is Pentecost Sunday and um, it's exciting. You know, I had a good reminder of this this week as I had a a Zoom call with the alumni uh, from seminary uh, at Knox when I was there and there was uh, myself representing Canada, uh, a number of uh, folks from the United States. Uh, There was one gentleman in particular from Guatemala City and another guy uh, calling in from Cape Town, South Africa. And so it was interesting to just be reminded about the gospel impact around the world, hearing about the gospel ministry around the world, and to hear about what God is doing in a saving grace, even this last year through the challenges of the pandemic. In particular, uh, I was really just struck by the guy from uh, Guatemala City who his church plant is in a city dump. They have approximately 2,600 people living in that city dump, and that's where he chose to plant his church. And so a number of churches from affluent areas are all supporting him and taking care of uh, his salary and the costs of of that church. But that's where he's chosen to minister. So can you imagine, as we've had to weave in and out of the challenges of this last year, um, uh, I just found myself sitting there and feeling like uh, in some respects, those challenges sort of paled in comparison to perhaps what he is having to contend with um, uh, in his ministry context, wild. But uh, at at any rate, today is just a, a, a glorious reminder of God's power globally. There's not many Christians here in Canada. We're probably, there's, there's, we're in the millions, you know. There's not many Christians in, in America. They're probably in the tens of millions. But you cross that water and there's a few billion of them over there. And it's sometimes it's difficult for us to remember that um, in our day-to-day context. But we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, the text we've referred to a few times today, where the spirit comes in like this mighty rushing wind and he just changes the global landscape forever. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read to 24, and then I'm going to read from 36 uh, to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they uh, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them dispersed tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other native tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And from their uh, dwelling in Jerusalem, there were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound had occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then there were... uh, They were all amazed and they marveled, saying to each other, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, and they were saying to each other, "'Whatever could this mean?' And others, mocking, said, "'They're drunk.' But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice, and he said to them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh.' And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above the signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Jesus could be held by it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified and he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And then fear and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and they all had all things in common and they sold their possessions and their goods and they divided them up among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. This is God's word. And we celebrate this. We celebrate this today that the Holy Spirit at Pentecost has come, has filled the church since then because up until this point, the Spirit of God would empower certain people. But after this day, the Spirit of God would indwell and empower all people. And so... This coming of the Spirit, it actually showcases what God has been intending to do from the beginning. He's he is doing something new, but he's also fulfilling something. Uh, in the temple, back in the Old Testament, the presence of God was uh, accompanied by fire. There was a pillar of fire at the temple. The pre- you knew that God's presence was in the temple because of the fire of God in the temple. And here now, and since this time, you've got the fire of God in his mobile temples. You've got the fire of God, the presence of God going out throughout um, all of his children. And we see from the beginning what God has intended is that he would dwell with us. This is what he wanted. You see it in creation, God dwelling with his people. And then after sin breaks everything, you find God dwelling with his people again in the temple, in the wilderness. As he's surrounded in the dust of the desert, he condescends to be with them, to dwell with them, surrounded by his 12 dysfunctional families, the tribes, right? He wants to dwell with his people. Then God incarnates and he comes in a manger and he dons human flesh, why? To dwell with his people. And then just as he was surrounded in the desert by his 12 dysfunctional families, Jesus is now walking around surrounded by his 12 dysfunctional disciples, wants to dwell with his people, right? Then the spirit comes and fills all of God's people to dwell with his people. And spoiler alert, at Revelation 21, what happens in the end? Heaven and earth will kiss again, the realm of God, the realm of humanity, as he raises us from the grave, as he restores all things, as we are saved by the love that cannot be held by death, God dwells with his people. This unified theme in scripture is that this transcendent God who flung the stars into the galaxies is the same eminent God who cares about you on Monday because he wants to dwell with his people. And so when the Spirit was poured out, in verse 12, the crowd asks, as they're hearing the gospel in their own languages, they ask, what does this mean? And so we're going to ask that same question today, this morning. What does this mean? And we sort of think about it, marinate in it, and celebrate it. You know, contrary to the popular cultural conversations that say that, you know, there's an inner hero inside of all of us that needs to get unlocked, and if we could just sort of unlock that inner hero— you know, we could save the world through our, our, our goodness and our uh, you know, education and being more aware of things. And the, the, this is a strong cultural conversation. But what we get here from Pentecost is that the answer that humanity needs doesn't bubble up from inside us. It comes like a mighty rushing wind outside us. Salvation is outside us. Our God is outside, outside us, who comes to us, what, what this world needs? is the message of the love that defeated death, the God who is outside us, who comes to dwell with us, to renew us, to revive us, um, to to unite himself to us. And this is a hugely offensive message uh, because we would prefer the idea that we kind of got this. It's been on a collision course with the message um, of our culture. We like that narrative. Everybody lives by a narrative. And Pentecost gives us the divine narrative. The divine narrative at Pentecost is that this God who, who wanted to dwell with us has now come by the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and that in the end of all time, he'll restore all things to dwell with us again forever. There's this divine narrative that we get swept up into. Um, but everybody lives by a narrative. Everybody lives by a story, whether it's the way the stories you heard growing up in your home, the political stories that you sort of hear from uh, the culture that we sort of... Uh, align with our ideas or core values marketers understand everybody lives by stories and narratives and so that's why absolutely everything that is marketed to us all the time comes in the, fo- comes in the form of seeing ourselves in that story and if you can't get your your audience to see themselves in that story you're not a very effective marketer because that's what marketing is it's like can you envision your life in this way and so this gospel, this divine narrative, this, this amazing work at Pentecost, it sweeps us into the divine narrative, right? So think about uh, things, uh, think about life um, this way because the, the conversation we enjoy is that we can essentially save ourselves through our politics, or our affluence, or our good eating habits save ourselves. Think, ask yourself this question. Is life a, is the narrative of life uh, ending in a comedy or ending in a tragedy I'm using like the classic literary sense like people would say of Shakespeare you know if Shakespeare's work is a, a comedy or a tragedy because if, it, if the play ends in a wedding it's a comedy and if it ends in a, in, a, in a funeral it's a tragedy and when you think about life what is it a comedy or a tragedy I don't mean that we laugh, laugh our way through it but it is uh, at the end it is a tragedy because life starts very high and it ends very low it starts with youth and exuberance and, and health and vitality and dreams and aspirations. And it, we all end the same place in the grave. say, well, what a downer uh, on uh, Pentecost Sunday to kind of talk this way. But what I want you to see is that the divine narrative, the narrative of Scripture, is that it is a comedy. That, that life actually starts very low with the suffering, the challenges, as we look out our window and we, we consider the, the challenges of our of not only our own lives and our own city or our own nation, but globally, the injustices and the impressions and the difficulties. We look at these challenges, but, you know, in the end of the divine narrative, it doesn't just end in that tragic end, that tragic death. It ends in resurrection, restoration and life. Pentecost sweeps us up into a new narrative to live our life according to that new narrative. That That's why at the end of the text I wrote, you know, they're at that point, they're all selling their stuff and, and making sure everybody had what they needed and we do that in different ways today in terms of caring for our own congregation, making sure everybody has what they need. But the bottom line is you really think about life, your bank account, what you're up to on Monday. But you think about everything quite differently when you're swept into a divine narrative uh, because that, that just revolutionizes the way that you see it. Imagine if uh, Romeo and Juliet, which we know is a tragedy. We call it a tragedy. Why? Because the place starts very high. There's love and joy and, and, and emotion and Passion! And it all ends and there are a heap of dead bodies on the stage and and the curtains close. It's a picture of life. But imagine if after five minutes of the curtains being closed, the curtains opened back up and on the pile of dead bodies of that Shakespearean play, Romeo and Juliet open up their eye and they look at each other and they 're like, "Aha, you know we were faking the whole time and they get up and they skip away and they 're like, "We get to enjoy this you know love that we've you know and the play doesn 't actually end like that, but if it ended in that sort of a resurrection and them skipping off to enjoy their love, then the play would not be a tragedy. it would be a comedy. This is the resurrection. this is the message that captivated. Um, Three thousand on that uh, first day by the power of the spirit, and then into the into the billions, um, today, this message of resurrection, the good news of this gospel, and you see that the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was not a a private personal experience; it was a public declaration, it was not like a charismatic church meeting that was kept within those four walls they they left those four walls, went into the street this became. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, was this cross-cultural declaration of the gospel to diverse people groups from different walks of life in languages that they understood, right? It was just a massive, massive move of God's grace um, to get this gospel to go global. And consider that in that upper room, there's 120 people in that upper room, and included in the uh, 120 people are the 12 apostles. Now... The twelve apostles just spent forty days with the resurrected Jesus. I mean, they're the most—they're the most qualified people in that room. But it's not just the spirit that comes upon this—the quote unquote—qualified. The Holy Spirit comes in that room, and it comes on the men and the women. It comes on the apostles and those who didn't walk with Jesus in the same way. It comes on those with loads of ministry experience and those with no ministry experience. This just this massive, uh, glorious outpouring. Everybody receives um, the power of the Spirit, so that they go out into the street with this confidence. What does this Holy Spirit-inspired confidence look like at Pentecost? Uh, it looks like they're drunk. Uh, they're all lightly toasted, and they're going out into. What does this mean? It's a detail worth exploring, because uh, it, you know Peter starts his very first gospel sermon with like, "Hey, we're not drunk, by the way." Uh, not only that, but Paul picks up on this image of of. Uh, of being drunk uh, in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, don't be drunk with wine, right? Totally being led let around by these impulses that come by bad decision-making if your inhibitions are down and you're drunk. Don't be led, don't be drunk with wine. Be drunk with the spirit. In other words, let your inhibitions come down and be very bold about this message of Christ, this message of the gospel. You think about the the, the, the impact of this picture of of this them going out, you know, alcohol is a, is a depressant, right? It gets into the neurotransmitters, it relaxes our brain. You get lightly toasted, and the inhibitions come down, right? We were hanging out yesterday on our deck as a family with uh, Susan's uh, mom and dad, and her aunt was here, uh, and, uh, and and we were sitting out in the sun, and her, and uh, and uh, her aunt enjoyed a glass of wine, and all of a sudden, she gets up. And she goes over to Nigel, who's dribbling a basketball, and uh, she's like, seven. and she's like yeah. 70 years old, by the way. And so this 70-year-old woman walks, marches over to Nigel, and boom! She just, she just schools Nigel! She's, right, Nigel? She, yep. steals the, she steals the ball from Nigel. She looks at my teenager in the face. She goes, I played basketball when I was in high school. Why did she do that? Well, she wasn't blackout drunk, but she was feeling good. She was lightly toasted. Her inhibitions came down. She's like, I'm going to go steal this basketball from this teenager. She went out front. She was shooting hoops on the street with Nigel. When, you, when your inhibitions come down, there is a confidence, whether it's the confidence to dance or the confidence to steal a basketball from a teenager and then go and challenge them in a game of one-on-one on the street. The point is the spirit comes and empowers them with this joy and this confidence and this humility. And not only that, of course, but of course their minds are blown because they're speaking the native languages of, of languages that they, had never, that they had never studied before. And the point is that they go out with this lack of inhibition, this boldness to be generous and to, and to share the good news of the gospel. And so they go and they proclaim it loudly in the streets, right? And the important thing to note, not only here about the day of Pentecost, but the entire book of Acts, is to note what the message was. I mean, what was the church talking about, right? And what dominated all the sermons in the book of Acts was the resurrection of Christ. What dominated the conversation of the church, not just the not just the preachers, uh, but like the the church, who were all preachers, they were talking about Christ's death and resurrection. The text I just read, it talks about the mighty works of God, right? The mighty works of God through history, the mighty works of God through Christ, the mighty works of God through how Christ has consolidated all of history and fulfilled all things, the resurrection, the impact of that. I mean, this was what dominated their their conversation. And because it did, this message was so powerful and attractive, not to everybody, but to 3,000 people. Right? 3,000 people in one day found it attractive. Of course there were people that found it unattractive, uh, that said they were drunk. Of course there will always be, there's always gonna be somebody who says, you know, I believe that the universe started for no apparent reason and there's no amount of science that you can show me that seems to suggest that there could be design and purpose behind the cosmos. I just, I just believe in the virgin birth of the universe without a virgin. There will always be people in that space. But there will always be people who will hear the good news of the gospel if we are bold to preach it, if we are bold to share it. And they will um, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason that I, I hammer this is because the, the message of the early church was not, was not hey, Rome, we, there needs to be some reform in your ethics. We wanna talk about the way in which you are governing this nation that are incongruent with the ways of God. That was not the message of the church. They subverted Rome. They, sub- they subverted all of those sorts of things. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that there isn't a time and place for the church to appropriately, as you know, John the Baptist did, speak truth to power and say, hey, Herod, this thing you're doing is not, is, is not on. This is not appropriate. I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for those sorts of helpful discussions. But what I am saying is the predominant, prevailing conversation of the church, which caused the gospel to spread, was not conversations ar- around you know, incongruent ethics. They weren't in the business of trying to clean fish that weren't even in the boat. They're like, we are preaching Christ. We are talking about our hope for life and death. That in the end of this life, which is ultimately tragedy, we have the good news of this divine comedy. We have the good news of this gospel, this resurrection. <clears throat> and so, there, uh, the last thing I w- want to maybe say about this conversation about them calling them drunk and this picture of, of, uh, of the church going out and being, because of their boldness, being misunderstood as drunk, is that there is a massive difference between being drunk on wine and being drunk on the spirit. And this is Paul's point in Ephesians. When you're when you're when you're drunk on alcohol, you are unaware of reality. In fact, you are not thinking about reality. But when you are drunk in the spirit, to use Paul's vernacular you are very aware, hyper aware of reality and willing to stare reality in the face and willing to have tremendous boldness even in the face of the darkness of whatever that reality is by the power of the Holy Spirit Um, to find comfort, strength, renewal, right? Speak the words of gospel. This is what it means for you and I church to be empowered by um, the Holy Spirit. And so we see Paul doing this all through um, the book of Acts as he's engaging different diverse people groups, and you get this picture of what God uh, wanted from the beginning—not one one kind of people, but all kinds, all kinds of people. Um, and so this this Pentecost, um, this day—the reason why they're all there, all these different people groups—is it's the festival of weeks. It's a Jewish holiday. The 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 word Pentecost it comes from the Greek Greek word. Pentecoste, which is 50s or 50th. And so what happens is this is 50 days uh, after the after uh, the, the Feast of Weeks and they're, they're here and they've converged on Jerusalem and all the, the different uh, countries are represented and we get this picture of what God wanted from the beginning. It puts God's goal on display. The forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life to every culture, every nation, everywhere right? After the Holy Spirit's outpouring, uh, people don't abandon their cultures to be part of this thing called Christian culture. There, There is no such thing as Christian culture. You actually see the opposite. You see Christianity being the most culturally diverse religion on the planet, not just then, but now, uh, because the spirit of Christ, it applies the grace and the renewal of Christ to your respective culture. So what we, what we find is that in every culture, the Spirit brings renewal and revitalization right, to how Christian believers relate to life according to their cultures. And of course, there's things in all of our cultures that we can celebrate. And there's things in all of our cultures that we can challenge right, as people of God who already have a king. And so we see this as the Spirit is poured out, not on one kind of people, but on all kinds of people. And so this should give us tremendous boldness in our witness here in Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, because when we look at uh, Pentecost, we realize we can't disqualify anybody um, as not being the quote-unquote kind of person that might come to Redeemer to hear the gospel or the kind of person that wouldn't uh, be willing to... uh, consider Christ and place their faith in Christ and that's because there isn't one kind of person it's every kind of person so what we want to be the kind of church that gives this tremendous sense of uh, dignity to all cultures and relate to our own cultures uh, with humility uh, because we we want of course what God what God wants um, and that is to see his saving grace going out to all kinds of people and so at that time in history, sharing the gospel looked like being out in the street and declaring it broadly. Um, you know that's what Paul did, and the Athenians. You know some of them were like You're a crazy person, and some of them were like, "We want to hear you again about this." Um, and as I mentioned before, when Susan and I were on our twentieth anniversary in Greece, we stood there and we saw where Paul stood in the natural amphitheater and the rock, and where how this is was normal. You know that's how people discussed ideas today. That's not that way. So for us, sharing the gospel probably not going to look like going down on King Street or Weber and just talking to whoever's walking by. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that but culturally, that's not... It's going to look like you being bold enough, you know, to go have coffee. <coughs> After work, you go for coffee or you go for drinks. You're in somebody's backyard. You're hanging out at the barbecue. You know, we're allowed to have, hang out with five people outside Safely, you fire the barbecue up, you invite the neighbors, you meet your neighbors. I mean, it just, it looks like this beautiful organic connection with people and then having the boldness to give a defense for the hope that we enjoy, right? That, that the message of our life, even though there's lots of conversation to be had about lots of very important things, but we are unafraid to get to the thing, right? And so this is what uh, the early church um, did. And this is what our church did. Uh, Aims to do, this exact same thing, to declare the mighty acts of God, right? Not only through history, not only through what Christ has done at the cross, but what he has done in your life and in my life, the mighty acts of God. Now, <clears throat> um, the, as the, the presence of the Spirit comes there on Pentecost, it's described as fire. And I'm going to close the sermon today by getting to you reflect on a couple things about this fire. Um, You know, fire illuminates and it refines and it consumes. That's what fire does. And I want us to reflect um, on those three things in our own lives. On how the fiery presence of God comes. Because that's how Jesus talked about the work of the Spirit, by the way. When you read how Jesus talked about the Spirit, it's like, he will testify of me he will testify of what I've said. He will testify of what I've done. He will teach you all things, a.k.a. teach you the things that I came and taught, right? The, the Holy Spirit's ministry, he, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is quite happy to be a spotlight. That's what he's up to. And Jesus said that's what he's up to. He's gonna shine a spotlight on me and he's gonna take all of the things that I am saying and doing and he's gonna make them a fiery reality in your life, a fiery reality in your heart and your soul. So let's think about our own lives What is it that we need God to consume, burn away? Oh God, what sin is there in my life that I know this is contrary to your word and it needs to be gone? Oh God, by your grace, help me. What needs to be consumed? What needs to be illuminated? I mean, how how is it that I need your word to illuminate my next step, my path? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Lord, how will you guide me through this thing that I am dealing with? Give me wisdom, O oh God. What can he consume? What can he illuminate? And what, what can he refine? You know, fire refines. It burns away impurities and it leaves the pure substance there. And how is it that God can refine you and I, our character, our hearts, the way that we relate to our family, our friends, colleagues, work, the integrity with which we handle our vocation? How can he refine us Burn away our fears of social death so that we share the gospel. Burn away our worry uh, about our own reputations so that we can get outside of ourselves. How can he burn away our selfishness so that we don't continually, you know, get, get? I mean, on the one hand, we've hated, we've hated COVID and lockdown. But on the other hand, COVID and lockdown has been an opportunity to serve. The selfish part of a heart that enjoys the fortress of solitude has enjoyed the excuse to be like, well, I can't meet my neighbors anyways, because after all COVID, what, how can you burn away my selfishness so that I can get outside of myself and love my neighbor? Not just sit back and say, you know, go for it, uh, redeemer, uh, I'm going to write a check and support what you're up to. Not that for some of you, you need to release the, the death grip on your wallet. So that you can be be generous. I don't mean to the church. I mean perhaps to the church. But I mean in in general. Just in caring for people. So perhaps that's you. Where the early church lived with this generosity and simplicity. And that's a challenge. Maybe God needs to do some refining there. In terms of your giving of your resources. But for some of you that's not a problem. You'll give money all day long. You're radically generous. But if it's about getting into that little space called your time, your world, your schedule, your thing, your... Your agenda, your space, it's just like, whoa, hands off. Can I write a check? No, you need to be refined by the power of the spirit so that you get outside of yourself and give your life away. And that's not some sort of a program. There's no one, two, three step for that. That's just the daily in and out work of the spirit to live an outward facing life of love (coughs) and of care. So what can be consumed? What can be refined? What can be illuminated, oh God? Would you open our hearts to that so that we can live uh, the way that this text ended? Not that we all, you know, you're like, oh, no, this is the part where Paul asks us to sell our houses. Uh, No. No, we don't need to do that. Um, Of course, if we were ever in a context globally where we did need to do that, then we ought to be willing to do it. But in our context, no, we don't need to do that. But there's a generosity and a simplicity uh, and a community that they were enjoying. And so they related to everything like it wasn't theirs. Not just their material goods, but like their time, their life. They related to it like it wasn't theirs. And so may God do a deep work of the spirit in all of us, church, as we head into this next phase of meeting in a tent for the summer. It's probably going to rain on us. It's probably going to be humid. Probably going to be sitting out there and it's it's a romantic idea. Oh, uh, outdoor service. Well, maybe it'll be awesome. Maybe it won't be so great. Uh, maybe it'll be challenging, maybe it'll be like, man, maybe Zoom church was a lot easier because I could uh, enjoy from the comfort of my own home and now I've got to sit under a sweaty tent with these other Christians. May God do a work of the Spirit so that there is a sense of generosity, a sense of community, a sense of simplicity uh, in our hearts so that we can be steadfast in our worship, you know, eat our bread and drink our wine with the simplicity of hearts, with the joy. May God do this work in us, church, Uh, so that we can have favor with all people, just as the text says they had favor with all people. How do you have favor with all people? Well, they didn't do it by just amalgamating the values and the ethics of all kinds of people. They did it by the power of the Spirit, by loving all kinds of people, by caring for all kinds of people. May God do the same in us uh, by the Spirit. Because, you know, before the Exodus, when God wanted to save people in grace, he set a bush on fire. Here, today, God wants a global exodus. He wants to save the nations by grace. So he sets you and I on fire. Let's pray.